And we're going to continue the study that we began a few weeks ago called It's Not About Us. And uh, even though the title of this message is It's Not About Us, it kind of is. So, <laughs> and um, what I mean by that is for these few weeks together uh, that we uh, try to come back to once a year where we look at some of the foundational of scriptures that form the bedrock of our understanding of who we are as a church, we are kind of talking about ourselves. So it, in that sense, it is about us. This is about crossroads, but not ultimately. Ultimately, and without apology, when we come back to this on an annual basis, it's because we want to make, we want to make sure that we do not let uh, the purpose for which God has called us, and think about that for a minute. Just look around the room. How could it possibly be in any other situation except that God has arranged it that you are sitting this morning in the same room with these people? I mean, that's a miracle. God has orchestrated our lives to intersect in this way and for uh, his purposes. And we need to make sure that we never lose sight of those purposes. It is not enough just to hold Sunday services or other, you know, things that we invite people to, meetings to attend. Uh, That's not enough. God has called us to high purpose together. And we never want to let that understanding leak out. And so we, we return, uh, at least on an annual basis, to refresh our understanding of why we are in this together. And so ultimately, it is not about us. It's about those whom Jesus died to save. And so together, we have been called to help uh, uh, fulfill that great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And um, so these weeks together, uh, we are looking at four um, values, very important values to us in Crossroads that come out of a, an incident that's recorded in the book of Luke where, uh, that we began this series with where Jesus was speaking in a house and it was full of, of religious people that were there to hear what he had to say. Most of them were there just to kind of figure out how they could pick on what he had to say, but nonetheless, they, that the house was full. However, there were some guys there that had a friend who was crippled and they could not just sit idly by. They had to try to get their friend to Jesus hoping that Jesus could heal him. So they bring him to the house, but they can't get in because it's full. So they didn't let that stop them. They were creative enough to get up on the roof, tear the tiles apart, and drop their friend. Now, they just didn't drop him down there. But, I mean, they lowered him down before Jesus so that he uh, could heal him, and he did. And out of that passage, we saw four things that were uh, vital to our understanding of who we are as a church, that we are devoted to those that are... Uh, that God has placed in the circles of our influence, that we are captivated by the presence of the power of God to change lives. That's what that passage in Luke says, that the power of God was present to heal. And those guys were unsatisfied with just letting their friend suffer. And so they they, um, thought outside the box in creative ways and got their friend to Jesus. Anyway, that forms our, our platform for these these weeks together. And last week we talked about the first of these four things, that we are captivated uh, by the presence of the power of God to change lives. And today we're going to be looking at the fact that we are concerned for those in the circles of our 
life's influence. And you have a circle of influence. You may not like that fact because it kind of comes with some responsibility, but you do have a circle of influence. There are people who are observing your life. We'll talk more about who those people are in a little bit. But we, as a congregation, we take this seriously, that we have people that God has assigned to each of us to represent him and his gospel to them. Now, I ask you to turn to uh, Acts chapter 10, and we'll begin reading in verse 9 there in just a minute. But I want to give you the prequel and the sequel before we actually get to the, to the main, uh, main event. Is that okay? How about the rest of you? Is that okay? Okay. That was, who was that? That was really good. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. In Luke, don't turn there, because I'll read the verse first. There's one verse I'm going to refer to. In Luke chapter 5, there was this incident where Jesus is on the road. He's traveling with his disciples, and they come to a toll gate, basically, a place where taxes were being collected along the road. And uh, Matthew was the tax collector. Matthew was considered by all of his Israeli brethren to be a a heretic because he worked for the Roman uh, government collecting taxes, but he was a Jew. And uh, if you know anything about how taxes were collected in those days, you know it was as much as you and I dislike the IRS... Uh, these people were considered far worse than that because they were corrupt and they, were, they, they made their living by, by skimming off. They, they would charge you more than they were being assessed by the government and whatever more they could get from you, they could keep and that's how they made their living. Anyway, Matthew. Jesus comes to Matthew's toll booth, points a finger at him, says, follow me. And for whatever reason... Matthew, that was, that was like the key that unlocked the rest of his life. He dropped what he was doing, left his toll collecting, left his tax collecting, and became one of the disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, and eventually wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Life-changing event, and those words, follow me. But Matthew, he is a sinner. He's a, you know, he hangs out with people that are unsavory by the Jewish elite standard. And all he really knows how to do is throw a party, and so that's what he does. Now that he's a believer, he does what he knows how to do. He gets all of his sinning buddies together, and they have a party, and he figures, well, if I can get all my sinning buddies together, along with Jesus and his followers, maybe something will happen. Something's happening in my life. Maybe something will happen in their lives too. So he does that. Jesus and the disciples show up, and some good things are happening, but the Pharisees are observing this. All you know, The religious guys, the scribes, the Pharisees, they're observing this, and they're really upset that Jesus, who claims to be, you know, representing the kingdom of God and his followers are eating and drinking with sinners. And so they get the disciples aside and they say this in Luke 5.30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And you can hear the accusation in their voices when they do. How can you possibly eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And some of you will know the rest of the story when Jesus says, Hey, I didn't come for the, for the people who are well or think they're well. I came for the sick. 
That's another story. But hear that accusation from the Pharisees, the religious elite. How can you possibly have anything to do with sinners? Now, skip ahead to the, uh, to the sequel. Acts chapter 11. We're going to be reading in Acts chapter 10, verse 9 in a minute. Acts chapter 11, the next chapter, verse 1 of that chapter, begins um, with an inquisition of sorts. Because we're going to be reading in a little bit about how Peter, one of the disciples, was used by God to see the gospel arc across from just a simply uh, a Jewish-centered um, faith to the Gentiles. He was an eyewitness of the arcing of the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. And I am so glad that that happened because I wouldn't be here. Otherwise, I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. But I have come to know Christ because of what we're going to read about in Acts chapter 10. It's a wonderful thing. But Peter's getting called on the carpet for it by his fellow disciples. The same guys who were there with him in Luke chapter 5 verse 30 when they heard the Pharisees say, how can you possibly eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners now that Peter has been an instrument used by God to preach the gospel to the, to the Gentiles, his fellow disciples get a hold of him and they say to him, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? And you can hear the same accusation, the same pharisaical voice in this disciples, the guys that Jesus left in charge of his church. This is about 10 years later. How is it possible that disciples have become Pharisees in a span of 10 years? Because it happens fast. And if we're not careful, it'll happen to all of us. And I'm a little concerned, to be honest with you. Not that I see anything, just because I've been around long enough to know that this happens. Sue and I, this February, will have completed uh, nine years of serving as this church's pastor and will begin our 10th year. May it be, dear ones, that we who have been disciples do not become Pharisees. But we don't get to just pat ourselves on the back and say, well, that'll never happen to us. These were the disciples of Jesus. <laughs> they followed him around for three years. They've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They experienced Pentecost. These same guys. So if we're not careful, we can become vulnerable to that. But Peter escaped this somehow. And I want to find out how. You with me? So we're going to read how in Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 9. The next day, let me tell you what happened the day before. <laughs> this happens after this happens. There's this Roman centurion. He's a, that means he's in charge of 100 men, a high-ranking officer in the Roman uh, army. He's stationed or lives in Caesarea Philippi. It was the Roman outpost in Palestine. Somehow or another, this guy, Cornelius, has come to faith 
in the true and living God. He's come to believe in the God of the Hebrews. He has no natural connection to the temple, to the word of God, but he has come to believe in Jehovah. And so he's praying and seeking God. And the Lord sends an angel to speak to him. And to say to him, look, I hear your, your cries. I, I hear your prayers. And I want to answer. I want to respond to the longing of your heart. Here's what you need to do. Get some of your guys. Send them down to this city called Joppa. And when you get to Joppa, look for Simon's house. He's a tanner. That means he... he um, uh, uh, deals with leather and he lives down by the sea. He tells him exactly where to go. And he says, when you get there, ask for another guy named Simon who goes by the name of Peter. Bring him here and he'll tell you what to do. So Cornelius does this. That's what happens the day before. Okay? The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city. So these guys that Cornelius sent, they're on their way. Peter went up on the housetop to pray. He doesn't know anything about this. He goes up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. It's, that's noon. It's lunchtime. He's hungry. And while they're fixing lunch, he says, well, I'll go pray. So he goes up on the roof and he's praying. Verse 10, then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descending to him and let down to the earth. So picture an inverted parachute coming down. He's seeing this in the, in the spirit. He see, he's having this vision of this thing coming down out of heaven. In verse 12, In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, you know, uh, that might make sense, except for the fact that what's being referred to here is the types of creatures that were in this inverted sheet were not kosher. They were not, uh, you, if you were a good Jewish boy, as Peter was, you couldn't eat this stuff. And so he hears God saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat, and he figures it's a trick question. And so, verse 14, Peter says, not so, Lord. I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And he figures he's going to get an attaboy for that, right? <laughs> Verse, um, verse 15, And a voice spoke to him again the second time. This is what God says in response to that. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times. He has this vision and the response three times. God is making a point. And then the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, well, Peter wondered within himself. So he's pondering this in a meditative, prayer-like state. We know that he began this whole thing by going into prayer. And he's continuing in a state of prayer. Now that he is, his sensitivities, his ways of thinking about people have been confronted by God. God says, don't you dare call common what I have cleansed. And as he's considering this, rethinking, how he sees people. It says that, um, uh, verse, uh, verse 17, Now while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. It's in this meditative, prayer-like state 
that he hears the knock at the door of Cornelius's men. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them. You, you, can't, you and I can't even begin to imagine what a challenge that was for Peter. You, you, if you were a Jew, you did not go to a Gentile's house ever, let alone a Roman centurion? There's heck no. There's no way. And God is speaking to him by the Spirit, says, Arise, go down there, meet those guys, go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent them. In these verses are some critical things I want us to think about that helped Peter escape the, the trend from disciple to Pharisee. And you and I can learn something so that we also can skip that one, right? How many of you want to skip that one? Yeah, I do not want to make that transition from disciple to Pharisee. And we don't want our church to either. So let's take a look at this. First of all, I want you to consider with me, again, as I began, that you have a circle of influence. You have a group of people that God on purpose has surrounded your life with. Who are they? Well, first of all, they're your family. You may not be able to see this well, but uh, that's a family there. Uh, and you may not like the one you have, but that's immaterial. You have a family, and that's on purpose. That's not a mistake. God knows, knows what he's doing when he arranges these things. And yes, I know a lot of heartache as well as a lot of blessing can come through family. Join the club. We all have that situation. But in there, there's something God intends to do. Another group of people in your circle of influence are your family, or your friends and neighbors, excuse me, your friends and neighbors. So there's your family, there's your friends and neighbors. I, on my way here this morning, I was driving by, or, or turn, made the right-hand turn off of our street uh, onto Rickover, and... Um, saw one of our neighbors who lives maybe 50 yards from us uh, walking his dog. And I know who he is, but I've forgotten his name. Sue's told me because she's met him and his wife. And, you know, uh, and, but I just, you know, yeah, so, so what? I just, you know, cataloged, yes, that's a neighbor. I know what he looks like, and, and that's about it. I never pursued it. Never even, it wasn't important enough to me to remember his name. He lives 50 yards from me. And I didn't think it was important enough to remember his name. And I'm driving by this morning. And I'm thinking, who's that guy? And the Lord says, yeah, who's that guy? Somebody I love and died for. That's who that guy is. We have people in the circle of our influence. Another group of people in that circle are your work and school associates. People you hang out with doing your job. People that you that you associate with at school and frequent contacts, you know, people that you see at the gas station, the cashier at the grocery store, Starbucks barista, people, you know, I had this weird thing happen one time when I was in San Francisco visiting friends in the sunset and um, we just went for a walk and went down to one of the Starbucks in the neighborhood. I walked in there, this is San Francisco, Never lived there. I rarely go there. I walk in there, and one of the baristas says, Hey, Randy. 
And that's when I knew I have got to quit this habit. I am just, there's, this is, this is ugly. Uh, turned out he was a guy who'd been uh, uh, in a store in San Jose that I used to frequent. Anyway, they get to know my name. Now, they do it for commercial reasons. We have a much greater reason to get to know their names, don't we? Holy smokes. God help us. There are people, people that Jesus loves and died for in the circles of our influence that we need to see differently. And that's the first thing that happened with Peter. He began to see people differently. God said to him, don't you dare call common what I have cleansed. He wanted Peter to see people as God sees them. So we're going to talk about how we escape uh, moving from disciples to uh, Pharisees by identifying those he, God, has assigned us. Learn to recognize the people he's placed in the circle of your life's influence. Right now I challenge you. You're not going to be able to catalog them all, but I challenge you in the name of Jesus. Think of three, four, five people that you've not even, they've not even been registering to you. You, you have, you've just, you've not even paid attention to the fact that they're in your life. Identify them as people that God has arranged in your circle, your sphere of influence. I use that word sphere because that's what Paul used when he was speaking to the Corinthians in first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, where he said, the sphere which God appointed us a sphere or a circle which especially includes you. He was talking to the Corinthians and he says, I recognize that you, you folks living in Corinth are in my sphere of influence. Identify those. And I'll, you know, I'll never forget, you've heard me tell this story before, but I'll never ever forget the day that this came home to roost in my life. I was, uh, I went to the Arco station near my home in San Jose for the hundredth time. I'm there like every other day either to buy gas or a muffin on the way to work. I know you're not supposed to eat muffins, but, you know, look at me. So Anyway, every other day I'm in there. and Same guys at the cash register, but I got to honestly tell you, I never even considered him as human. I, all I ever thought of him as was a hand to take my money. And I'm standing in line, and like a brick to the head, as only God can do it, the Lord assaulted me with the truth. I love that guy. It's not an accident that you're here every other day. Come on, get with the program. And I, I oh man, I had a transformative moment there. And I got to the cash, I got to the, you know, cash register, the front of the line there and all I could think of to do was to shake the guy's hand now I'm sure that that's not what he was expecting and maybe even went for his pistol I don't know but I mean I I reached out I took his hand and I and I said uh, my name is Randy what's yours and I got his name and um, I'll tell you you know that that began uh, a many month prayer campaign on my part for that man's soul I finally got with the program let's identify the people in the circles of our life's influence. 
the next thing that we see here in, P in Peter's example was that once you have that transformative moment where you start to see people differently, you, you, you have to do something with that in prayer. You know, he meditated on that. He saw, he was beginning to see people differently and then in that state of prayer about what he's seeing, that's when he hears them knocking at the door. You know, sometimes we think about our neighbors and friends and family and so on. As, you know, they, they don't really want anything to do with the gospel. So, you know, we, they, they would be offended or upset if I brought it up. And so we kind of play it close to the vest. But it's interesting, once you start seeing people differently and then begin to intercede for them or pray for them, like I did for the guy at the Arco station, it's interesting how you, your heart begins to change towards them and you wonder and you're concerned about them and you kind of imagine what their life might be like and it puts you in a different place like Peter was that day in that meditative state where you can hear them knocking. Because most of, let me tell you, most of your friends and family, the people that you think don't care about Jesus, they do. They are desperate for him. If they were given half a chance to know the Jesus you know, they would want to know him too. So we pray for them. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1, 3, and 4, it says this, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them. So what do, you pray for the, what do you pray for the guy who's the cash register at Arco? You pray, dear God, remind him of things that he's heard about your, about your word and his past. If he ever went to Sunday school or, you know, just bring those things back to his mind. Reach into the circumstances of his life and arrange and orchestrate things so he keeps bumping into you. I pray that you'll bless his life and cause the things that are uh, disrupted or, or concerned to him to be, to be um, made whole. Those kinds of things. You just pray for them. It's just, it's, he says, <laughs> Paul says to Timothy, ask God to help them. That's not so hard. Intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. So we identify those he's assigned us, we intercede for them, and then we look for ways to include them in our lives. That's what Peter did. He went with them. He went with them. Now, um, you, you know me. I'm not, I'm not advocating that we engage in the sinful practices of our friends and neighbors in an, in a, an attempt to lead them to Jesus. But I'm, I'm, we have to get close to them. Seek ways to be with them and build genuine friendships because the better they get to know you, the more of him they'll see. Now, you know, you guys know I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of dogs. Now, look, I, I guess I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I don't have really anything against dogs. You know, I'm not a hater of dogs. I hate dog ownership. Right now, Sue and I are babysitting a dog and... It is just everything I can do to hold it together. Honestly, it's just, it's rough. But I love my wife and she loves dogs. And so, you know, we've had dogs. Um, and years ago, we were, 
we went out and walked the dog around the block together. And, you know, it's really, seriously, what is attractive about walking around the block carrying a, a bag of dog poop? I mean, nothing, really. And it's, it's, but we're doing it, and, and she's enjoying herself. And me, not so much. And we're almost home, and I'm thinking, just a little farther, Randy, just a little farther. You can make it. You can do it. And about two doors down from our place, we, uh, we, two of our, our, I mean, our neighbors, husband and wife, they come out the door with their dog to go for a walk. And Sue, you know, gives me that in the ribs, and she says, Randy, let's ask them if we can walk dogs together. And I'm like, oh, come on, really? I mean, we're, it's all right. It's two doors down. We're almost home. And, and you know, good husband that I am, we, we did it. But the honest truth is that began a friendship that resulted in something simple like that. Two doors down, we finally get to, you know, know their names and you know, the name of their dog and whatnot. <laughs> anyway, but it, that simple thing resulted in one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had as a pastor, which was the day that in their backyard, in their hot tub, I baptized four of my neighbors. That happened simply because we walked the dog with them. You know, it, find ways to genuinely, not, you know, weird or artificial ways, but genuinely to connect with people for the sake of them coming to, into contact with the God who radiates from your life. Um, in Acts chapter 18, the first three verses, it talks, Paul talks about, or we're ta- told about Paul, who was a tent maker by trade, and how he, uh, he uh, found a couple of other, a, a married couple who were also tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila. And on the basis of that connection, that they were tent makers, he built a relationship with them that resulted in Priscilla and Aquila becoming one of the leading lights of the New Testament, or two of the leading lights of the New Testament. You read the book of Acts, and these guys are principal bearers of the, of the truth and um, ministry in, in, a, in a far beyond what most of us would ever imagine in terms of scope. Whether it's dog walking, or whether it's tent making, or whether it's your love for uh, motorcycles, whether, whatever it is where you're connected with people and there's bridges that can be built, let Jesus build those bridges. Incorporate them, include them in your life. Finally, invite them to bring, begin a relationship with Jesus. Um, Peter went with them. They went to, to Cornelius' house. Peter got up and he began to share with them the good news about Jesus. And and he found this, he was shocked, and the people who went with him were shocked by the fact that Cornelius, this Roman centurion, in all of his household, everybody he, he'd gathered there, every one of them were just waiting for the moment that people would say, and you can have this, or that Peter would say, you can have this too. It says before he finished his sermon, these guys were already filled with the Holy Spirit because they were just, they were hungry for Jesus, and so are your neighbors, friends, workmates, and frequent contacts. But a lot of us, I know, we don't feel very adequate about kind of closing the deal, you know. That's okay. 
We get to do this together. We get to do this together. And so, you know, if, you're, if you feel like you're, you're not quite sure how to lead someone into a saving faith, it's not that difficult. But if that's the case, then bring them to something where some of us who are a little more experienced can. Bring them to church with you. Bring them to Second Fridays, microchurch. All of, you know, there's lots of things, barbecues that we have, stuff that's going on where you could bring your friend and some of the rest of us can help take over. Let's do this together. A lot of you sitting here are people who have come to faith in Christ because of a friend, a family member. In fact, you know, the truth is all of us have come to faith in Christ because of the testimony of someone else. Let's be those someone else's. Someone's else, I guess is the right way to say it, maybe. And escape the pattern that so often takes people over where they begin as disciples and become Pharisees. This is recording number 11123 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Foursquare Church in Fairfield, California. It was recorded on Sunday morning, September 21, 2014. This is the third message in a series by Randy Bolt titled, It's Not About Us. This message is titled, Concerned. Circles of Influence.